All right, like Chad said, we're in Ephesians chapter 2, and uh, we'll be looking at verse 18 today. By the way, if we haven't met, I'm Dominic. I'm one of the pastor elders here, and I'm going to be preaching from the New Living Translation, Ephesians 2, 18, but just to get a little context, we'll start in verse 16. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And our hostility toward each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to the Gentiles who were far away from him and peace to the Jews who were near. And this is our verse today. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. This is God's good and right word for us today. Let's pray. Our ears are open. We ask that you would speak to us like only you can today. We ask that our hearts would be refreshed in the water of your word. We ask that you would do it for our good and for your glory and purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul is a Jewish man, right? And he's writing here to the church in Ephesus, which was a primarily Gentile church. And he's kind of turned a corner here in the middle of chapter two. It may have been easy while reading the first chapter and a half of this book to read it as an individual, like with me in mind. But as we get to like, verse 11 in chapter 2, it's almost impossible to miss the familial language that Paul starts to use here. I'll point out a couple of things. In verse 16, we just read it. Together, he says, together as one. And who is together? Well, he goes on to say that both groups are now together as one. Both groups have been reconciled to God. And then in verse 14, that both of these groups are now uh, make up one new group. We'll look at it next week in verse 19. And then he uses this, where he uses this word, um, household. You've all been brought into this house, household. The literal translation is family. You've all been brought into this family. Two groups having been brought together in one kingdom family. There's, there's no longer any, uh, any separation. The two have been one. And this wasn't just any two groups that have that been brought together, Paul is talking about here. This was the two groups. For Paul the Apostle, he, he was a Jew. And if you were a Jew in first century Israel, you were either a Jew or you were not a Jew, right? It's like my Italian family. If they meet you, they're like, are you Italian? And if the answer is no, they're like, okay. And they just kind of like, right? It's you're either Italian or everybody else. It's Hispanic, my Hispanic friends are the same thing. It's like, are you Mexican? No, nah, okay, you're everything else, right? The Jews were the exact same way in the first century. You were either a Jew, or if you were not a Jew, then you were outside of the promises of God, and you were called a Gentile. If you were a Jew, then you were looked as to being, like, close to God. There was Jews, and there was Gentiles. And between the Jews and Gentiles, there was no greater hostility in first century Israel. 
And it wasn't just religious hostility. It was social hostility. It was racial hostility and divide. It was political. There was no common ground between them. But now, through Christ, Billy taught the last two weeks, people groups that were at enmity with each other have been brought together, and God has made one new race out of the two. And so, church, it's no longer this or that. It's no longer those people or this people. Christ has made one new race out of all people that have been saved. And when God did this, he didn't do it as like the king of a province saying, okay, now all of those races are this race. That's not what he did. He said, now all of these races are this brand new race. This is a kingdom father starting a brand new kingdom family is what this is. And nobody earns a place in this family. We have all been brought in by the same grace. And when we come in by the same grace, we get the same status. No matter where you came from, we all get the same status, the status of child of God. And now, as children of God, our verse says today that we can, all of us now, come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. We all now have family access. We all now have access to the Father, some of your translations say. And this, that word access or, or, or the phrase in the New Living, come to, in, in the Greek, it, it's, it's two different words put together. It's prosegege, goge is the, the big word. Pros, though, it means to turn toward. Ago, it means to come. So literally, to come toward, specifically to come toward someone. And in ancient Greek, this word was used almost exclusively to talk about someone getting an audience with the king. This word was talked about someone getting an audience with the king. And no doubt, Paul has that in mind here. But Paul didn't just like know Greek culture. He, he was a Jew of all Jews. He was a Old Testament scholar who was well acquainted with the old covenant of the law, well versed in all of the religious protocols of the Old Testament. And so Paul would have had something else in mind here, not just the idea of somebody getting an audience with the king. For Paul, this idea of access would have been much bigger than that. He was talking about access to God. Furthermore, he was talking about access to intimacy with God. When we read the Bible, sometimes we miss the like, ugh, of it because we don't have the context, right? So Paul would write this to first century Jews, for instance, who would have read this and been like, okay, I get all of that. But it would do us some good to understand what us as far removed Gentiles 2,000 years later didn't understand. What even the, the church in Ephesus would have needed to understand to get the like, the goodness of this that Paul is trying to bring out. So I'm going to spend a few minutes here talking about some of like the the stuff that Paul knew that would do us some good to know for context for what's happening here and what he's saying in this verse, okay? First of all, under the covenant of the, the, the old, okay, under the old covenant, there was something called a tabernacle. It was the place of worship. And then later on, the permanent a temple in Jerusalem. In both cases, there was a place called the Holy of Holies. It was a chamber called the Holy of Holies. And inside the Holy of Holies was a thing called the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant is where the presence of God dwelt. In fact, I'm going to put up this uh, little image here. 
Okay, this is, this is a diagram of the tabernacle. We're going to talk about the tabernacle for a minute, and I got this fun little pointer, okay? So here's how this goes. Here's where you would enter into the tabernacle, okay? And there would be three parts. This part, this part, and this part. The three parts are the outer courtyard, the holy place, and the holy of holies, okay? This part right here, this part right here, you were only allowed in here if you were a male Jew, only Jewish men were allowed in there. If you were a Jewish woman, you weren't allowed in here. And then later when the temple was built, there was a court for women, a separate court for Jewish women. But if you were a Gentile, okay, Paul's writing to Gentiles. If you were a Gentile, you were outside of the whole temple in some like outer court. You were like fully disconnected. If you were a Jewish man, you were allowed in here to this altar. This is the brazen altar right here where you could bring your sacrifices. But you were not allowed past this point right here if you were anybody, unless you were a priest. If you were a priest, you could come past here. You could go into here. This is called the holy place. This is the first chamber. This is called the holy place. Only if you were a priest were you allowed to go in here. And in this place, there was three items. There was the table of showbread or the table of the presence. This is where fresh baked bread would be placed. It was baked fresh every single day. And because the bread was holy, only the priests were allowed to eat of this bread. And this, this was the menorah, the, the golden lampstands that would stay lit all day long in order to provide light for the tabernacle. And then this was the altar of incense. Incense would be burned as an offering to God, as worship to God all the time. If you were a priest, you were allowed to come into here, into the holy place. But this, this is the holy of holies or the most holy place. And nobody was allowed in the holy place. Of holies. In fact, if you went into the Holy of Holies, the punishment was death. And in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant of God. Now, God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. And yet, he chose to manifest his presence in a special way there in the Ark of the Covenant. And nobody was allowed in there except for one dude who could go in one time a year for one reason. Only on the Day of Atonement, could the high priest go in to the Holy of Holies where the presence of God dwelt, and he could only go in with a blood sacrifice. And when he went in, he sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat, to make atonement for his sins and for the sins of the entire nation of Israel. And when he went in, friends, he went in with fear and trepidation. In fact, it was so scary and so unsure of what might happen that the other priests used to tie a rope around the high priest's ankle and put bells on his feet just in case when he got into the holy presence of God, he fell over dead. They wouldn't have to go in and get him and potentially die themselves, but they could just pull him out with a rope. And if the bells stopped ringing, they'd know he's dead. That is the level of access to intimacy that we had with God before Jesus. The name alone implies the lack of intimacy, the lack of access, the holy of holies. Holy, it means set apart or other. And the holy of holies means the most set apart, the most other. Under the old covenant of the law, there was no access to this God who is holy, other, set apart. And there was certainly no access to intimacy with this holy God. 
However, the desire of God was always for intimacy because this was his plan in the beginning. He created humanity to be with him. But when sin entered, that bond of intimacy was broken and we were separated from this holy God because sin cannot be, or God cannot be in the presence of of sin, he is a holy God, and so we were disconnected. It not only was the bond of intimacy broken, but our access to intimacy was revoked. It was taken away. And yet, although we could not dwell in the presence of God any longer, God still desired to dwell in the presence of his people. Where was that tabernacle set up? Right in the middle of the people when they wandered the wilderness. Where was the temple in Jerusalem built? Right in the middle of the people. God wanted to be in the midst of his people because it has always been God's desire to dwell in the midst of his people, though his people could not dwell in the midst of God. Let me say it like this. Worship was always the idea. To commune with God in intimate, worshipful relationship was always the plan but we as a sinful people no longer had any access to God. And even the Jews, can you put that back up, Robin? Even the Jews were confronted with the reality that they really didn't have any access either. They talked about how they, they had access because they had the word of God, they had the promises of God, they were, had the prophets of God. But every time they went in here, they were confronted with the reality that I can't, even, only the men are allowed in there and I can't even go past the altar. Sure, I can pray to God. Sure, I can talk to God. Sure, I can sing some songs. Sure, I can read scripture. But I can't be in the presence of God. There's no intimacy. There is no relationship. There is only one dude could go in, and when he went in, he did not go in with bold, confident access. And it was not unrestricted. He went in terrified. He had terrified, limited access is what the high priest had, and only once a year. For the high priest, the holy of holies in the presence of God was not about intimacy with God. It was about making atonement for his sins and for the sins of the people. And it was scary. And yes, it was an act of worship. But his act of worship was consistent with all Old Testament acts of worship. Here's something that's key for us to learn and understand for this passage. Worship in the Old Testament was primarily about two things. Reverence and sacrifice. Worship in the Old Testament was primarily about two things, reverence and sacrifice. 99% of the time that you see the word worship in the Old Testament, it's the Hebrew word shakah. It literally means to bow down on your face, prostrate in homage before a king or a deity. Reverence. It's speaking of reverence and a physical act of reverence. Worship was about reverence, and worship was about sacrifice, specifically the sacrifice and blood of bulls and goats and innocent animals, something that would point to Jesus who would come and give his life in the future. And only after offering an atoning sacrifice could the high priest one time a year on one day have access to the presence of God, but when he did it, it was restricted, and there was nothing intimate about it. And for the rest of us, not only do we not have restricted access, we had no access whatsoever. The writer of Hebrews writes about it in Hebrews 9 when he says, but only the high priest ever entered the most holy place and only once a year 
and he always offered blood for his own sins and for the sins he had committed in ignorance. Sins of the people had committed in ignorance, sorry. By these regulations, check this out, the Holy Spirit revealed that the entrance to the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, was not freely open as long as the tabernacle and the system it represented were still in use. The Holy of Holies, the place where the the presence of God dwelt, was not freely open. Access had not been granted. But what does the writer of Hebrews go on to tell us? In chapter 10, it says, Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again. This is some of us, man. We live like this. Just like, I'm just coming, God. I'm just, I'm just trying to give you the same over and over. I'm just hoping that maybe you'll accept this. If I just do this, maybe, maybe I'll be, you'll be pleased with me. Maybe I'll be forgiven. Maybe I'll have access to you. Maybe I'll be accepted just over and over and over and over, which can never take away sins. Verse 12, but our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for our sins, good for all time. And then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. For by the one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins. Our good deeds could never cleanse our conscience. But Jesus came and gave his life and has cleansed our guilty conscience, forever taking away our sins. Therefore, in light of what Jesus has done, guys, therefore, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and living way through the veil into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right in to the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him for our guilty conscience have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Access has been granted, church. Access has been granted. The work is finished. Come boldly in. The father says, you think you don't belong here? Because of the work of my son, you belong in here. You didn't before. Nobody belongs in here. I'm too holy to have sin dwell in my presence, but my son came and he took away your sin. You belong here. You belong in here. See, worship in the Old Testament was about sacrifice and reverence. God is holy and infinite, and there is there's no right for me to dwell in his presence. And so, God, I'm going to bring you a reverent sacrifice, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring you a, a sacrifice of uh, innocent animals so that my sins can be uh, covered, so that you can receive, so that you might receive this reverent act of worship. It is about reverence and sacrifice in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, we see the idea of worship become something entirely different. There is no fear in this kind of worship. There is no wondering if I might be accepted in this kind of worship. God says, now you can come boldly 
Now you can come with confidence into the holy of holies and into what when we come into God's presence? Into what do we come? We come into intimacy with God. Worship in the New Testament is about intimacy. Worship in the New Testament is about intimacy. Oh, there's still a sacrifice involved. We still offer a sacrifice, but it's a sacrifice of praise. It's not the sacrifice of innocent animals. And oh, there is the bloodshed of sacrifice still in New Testament worship, but it is not the bloodshed of innocent animals. It is the bloodshed of Jesus who shed his blood one time and once and for all, and now the work is finished. Yes, New Testament worship is not without a sacrifice, but what worship in the New Testament is really about is intimacy. And what Jesus purchased on the cross was access to intimacy. He was restoring what had been broken in the beginning. We see this clearly in the language used in John chapter 4 when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well about worship. He says to her in John 4.23, but the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. This word worship in the Greek is the word proskuneo. Can you say proskuneo? Not all Greek words are easy, but that one's easy. Say proskuneo. Okay, it's made up of two words, okay? Pros, it means to turn toward. Kineo means to kiss. This word, when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, proskuneo, it means to turn toward and to kiss. Like this, those who turn toward and kiss the Father must turn toward and kiss the Father in spirit and in truth. He's talking about intimacy in worship, and intimacy was always the idea. Even Jeremiah, the prophet, he wrote about what would happen under the new covenant when the Messiah would come and he would inaugurate a brand new covenant. The old covenant would be put away and there would be a new covenant. And when he came and he wrote, in Jeremiah 30, he wrote wrote about this new covenant. He described it as a relational covenant. And he described it as there being four components to this relational covenant. I wanna briefly look at them here. Here's four descriptors of relationship under the new covenant. This is what Jesus brought in, okay? Number one, God would write his law on his people's hearts. So no longer would you be like just trying to do stuff from this like jacked up, sinful, broken heart, hoping maybe you can do something good, but he would come in and transform your heart, make you a brand new creation, and from the brand new creation, then you would just begin to live naturally by the power of his spirit and fulfilling all the good, righteous stuff of the law, okay? That was number one. Number two, God would be their God and them his people. Speaking of covenant, there would be a covenant in the relationship. Number three, God would permanently wipe away and forgive their sins. They wouldn't have to come over and over making sacrifices. Removing their guilt and shame. Ooh, that's what we get to rest in. Shameless relationship with God. But number four, this is what I wanted to point out. Number four, each person would know God. Jeremiah 31. I'm going to break it down here. Here's where he says it. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, you should know the Lord. For everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already, says the Lord. 
Now, when we read it in English, we miss the like potency of it. But when you read this in Hebrew, this word know is the word yada. It's the Hebrew word yada. Yada is the same word that was used to speak of a man going in and knowing his wife. Like Adam went in and knew his wife Eve. In that context, speaking of the most intimate thing that two human beings could possibly do. The covenant is about intimacy. This is the covenant that Jesus purchased with his blood. And this is what Paul is talking about when he says, and now all of us can come to the Father through Jesus, because, through the Spirit, because of what Jesus has done. Access to intimacy has been granted. Can you call my phone really quick? You can't? Why? Oh, he doesn't have my number. You can't call my phone, dude. You don't, have, you don't have access, right? You have no access to my phone. Come to my house for dinner tonight. By the way, you don't know my address. You've got no access, right? You don't have access. Access has not been granted. But you know who has unlimited, unrestricted access to my phone and to my dinner table? My kids. My children have unlimited, unrestricted access to my table. They've got the kind of access that only family gets. And Jesus came to give us direct, unhindered access to the Father as children in his family. His phone's never busy. His front door's never shut. And there's always a seat at his table. When Jesus died on the cross and said, it is finished, the veil that was one foot thick was torn in two from top to bottom. The veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. I don't know if I mentioned that when we put up that diagram, but there was a one foot thick veil in front of the holy of holies. That veil was torn in two. The veil that separated us from intimate, personal, worshipful relationship with God had been torn down. And Matthew makes no mistake about how it was torn down. He says, from the top to the bottom, i.e., God reached down from heaven and tore it himself, removing the physical barrier that separated us from him. And when you put your trust in Jesus, this is what happened. The barrier of sin was removed and access to intimacy was granted. Amen? Intimate, worshipful relationship with God was always the plan. And this is what we now have. But here's where I, the point I want to make in the, the rest of our time together. I'll put it up on the screen here. Worship was always the goal, but worship was always intended to be a communal thing. And this is what Paul knew that we often miss because we just, frankly, we just don't live in a culture that lives in community or cares about living in community with other people. But this wasn't just about a person having an audience with the king, which is, by the way, all you would have. If you got an audience with the king, then you didn't get to bring your whole posse in. You got to, like, by yourself stand with the king. That's not what this is. This is access to the father as a child in a family where there are other children. This is kingdom family access. We're in this Kingdom Family series, right? Well, check out our verse again today, just the beginning of it. Now all of us can come to the Father. Now all of us can come to the Father. Two things that are really important here in these few words. Number one, 
Father. God is not just holy and infinite. God is also present and personal. He's not just God. Paul makes note to say he is God, our Father. And I believe that what the New Testament teaches is that God is Father first. And it is from his Father's heart that everything else that he does flows. And what kind of institutions have fathers? Organizations? Nope. Military operations? Nope. Families have fathers. Families have fathers. We have been brought into a kingdom, but in this king, the king is a father. And in this kingdom, the citizens are actually children. Now all of us can come to the father. The second thing I want us to see here is now all of us. All of us. Paul isn't saying you have access He's not saying I have access. He is saying we have access and we have it together. And we don't take turns in our access. You don't go into the Holy of Holies and it's like, cool, let me know how it is. I'll be out here. Okay, now we get to exchange and I go in. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying that we all together have access into the presence of God. We want to read this as each of us come to the Father. He doesn't say each of us. He says all of us. We want to read it like each one has access. Each one comes to worship. Each one shows up when they want, how they want, and worships when they want and how they want and for how long they want. But that's not what he says. He doesn't say each of us. He says all of us. And this is the mystery, guys, that yes, God knows you specifically and intimately and knew your name, and saw the hairs or lack of hairs on your head. This is one of the most beautiful things about the gospel, that God knows me. What? Like, God knows me? But we cannot escape the reality that Jesus didn't just come to save you or me. He came to save us. He came to save us into himself. We're all brought into the same Savior, which means that all, we all collide right there at the cross. Worship was always the end goal, but worship was designed primarily to be a communal experience. And this can be as hard for me to hear as it is for anybody, because for, for one, I'm an introvert. I like doing stuff by myself, man. And for two, I have a really cool personal relationship with God. And I don't want anybody else inside of that. But we can't escape the fact that basically every time God called his people together in the Old Testament, he called them together as a congregation. And pretty much every time we see believers worshiping in the New Testament, they're doing it together. Sure, there are these isolated events like Moses with the burning bush where people are having experiences with God. But for the most part, you can't escape the fact that worship was designed to take place in community. Community was the idea. And of course it was. Of course community was the idea. We talked about it a couple weeks ago when we started this series. But we were created in community. When God looked at all of creation, the only thing that he said was not good was a solitary Adam. And so he created community. So he created Eve. And we were designed to experience God in community. God is a communal being himself. He exists in Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the three as one. And we were created in the image of God. And so part of what it means to be an image bearer of God is to live in community with other people in God's family who are also image bearers of God. 
Let me say it like this. Because God exists in community, for us to live in community is to exist like God exists. We even see God existing like this in our verse today. Did you catch this inner Trinitarian working that has brought us access to intimacy? Check it out. Let's read our verse again. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. God exists in community. And for us to live in community is to exist like God exists. But this isn't just about existing. And this isn't just about having relationships in the family of God, which that's certainly part of it. But here's what's a trip to me. When we were set free from the slave market of sin and brought into the family of God, we were brought in at the same time with other people who were being saved from stuff just like us. And all kinds of people, bald heads and dread heads, Mexicans and Asians and black and white, men and women, people who care about politics, people who don't care about politics, people who care about politics and are Republicans, people who care about politics and are Democrats or independents, people who are male and female, people who are like, I don't, I don't feel like I fit as male or female and they're confused about their identity, generally gender speaking, people who were straight, people who were gay, people who were adulterers, people who were faithful, people who were porn addicts, people who never looked at porn a day in their life, all different people from all different brokenness. God looked at all of our brokenness and he brought us in the same way. And as much as God saw you and you in your brokenness, he saw us as a broken people who he was making his own. Jesus came for me, but Jesus didn't just come for me. He came for us, right? The truth is we, we live in this radically individualistic society where everything is about me. I got my stuff. These are my clothes. I got my money. It's my house. It's my car. That's my vacation time. That's my weekend. This is, this is mine. And you've got yours. And if yours is better than mine, then I'm not going to expect you to share yours with me. I'm going to make more money so I can get one just like yours. And you're not going to expect me to share mine with you. We live with barriers around our lives and our hearts, certainly our stuff. We are born and bred in this individualistic society. So no wonder when we come to faith in Jesus that we still think it's all about us. We try to follow Jesus the same way that our society lives as isolated individuals. But when we do this, we miss out on the fullness of God because God exists in community. And if you are going to experience the fullness of God, you have to be in community. What we see in places like Acts chapter four is that it's not your stuff. It's our stuff. And it's not my stuff. It's our stuff. It's kingdom stuff. It's kingdom money. My money is not my money. It's kingdom money. My cars are not my cars. They're kingdom cars. My house is not my house. It's a kingdom house. My gifts are not my gifts. They're kingdom gifts. 
It's a kingdom. And I think we have lost what it means to be a family as society because quite frankly, we don't even treat our blood family like family compared to how other cultures live. Certainly most third world countries and certainly how the Jews lived in the first century. But what's mine is not mine. What's mine is ours. And what's yours is ours. And this access into intimate, worshipful relationship with God has not been granted to me or to you. It has been granted to us. The Christian life was not designed to be lived out in solitude. And neither was the worship of God. The psalmist wrote, oh, come let us. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our maker. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture. Now, of course, I I need to pray. Of course, I need to have a relationship with God. I need to listen to God for myself. We see this with Jesus all the time. He was constantly leaving the multitudes and he was going away and he was just being with him and the Father. This is absolutely necessary. I have stuff with the Father that you're never gonna know about and you're not supposed to come in there. 100%, we have that. We should all have that. But I can't live my whole life like that. Nor was the whole of my worship experience designed to be lived out like that. I was adopted into a family. And guys, this is actually a good thing. I know for some of us, we're like, it just sounds like work. I don't, it's just people are hard. (laughs) I get it, dude. But this is a good thing. God did it. God did it. This is a good thing. Kingdom family is not a curse. A mirror in front of my face, Dom, kingdom family is not a curse. Like kingdom family is good. God made this. It's going to be work. It's going to hurt from time to time, but it's for God's purpose and for our good. But what about John, though, bro? John's on the island of Patmos. He's just by himself. It's just Jesus, just cosmic, just visions, worship, just him and Jesus. Wrote a whole book. Like, come on, dude, John, though. What, John? He was exiled. He was punished. It was punishment for him to be sent away from the people. Some of us are like, yo, dude, that doesn't sound like punishment. That sounds like awesome, an island by myself for a little while. And that's how some of us live, though, right? Isn't that how some of us live? Like we're on an island of exile, alone, isolated. I'm going to fend for myself. I'm going I'm to do myself. I'm going to look out for me. I'm going to get mine. I don't need anybody else. I'm going to worship how I want. I'm going to worship when I want. I'm going to show up how I want to show up. You might even be taking full advantage of this access to intimacy, but doing it primarily outside of community. It's just not how God intended it. It's just not how God intended it. A few minutes ago, we read those passages from Hebrews about how Jesus is our heavenly high priest and about how he has brought us into access to intimacy. Here's what tripped me out this week. From, for seven chapters, the writer of Hebrews is basically saying the exact same thing from four to ten. He's just like, Jesus, the high priest, there used to be a high priest, and now Jesus, he's just over and over the same thing. It's beautiful. And this high priest has now given us access to intimacy. But what does he say in Hebrews 10, 25, without skipping a beat in his very next breath? What does he say? And let us not neglect our meeting together. 
as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. You can't separate what the writer of Hebrews is just talking about and us giving, getting access to the Father from the corporate gathering of the saints. You just can't separate it. Go read Hebrews 4 through 10 and see how many times the word I is mentioned or me is mentioned or you in the singular is mentioned. Zero. It's all we. It's all us. It's our.